I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of the Education Endowment Foundation podcast, Evidence Into Action. I'm really excited by this episode. It focuses on English as an additional language, and we'll dig into this topic. We'll dig into some of the challenges in schools, some of the support factors in schools, and, and try and unpack and understand this richness that we have in terms of one in five children in English schools speaking a language other than English. We are a multilingual nation, and that adds a huge amount of cultural richness. But also, we have schools talking about how they best support their pupils. And I think to do so, we need to make sure that we understand all of the pupils we teach, but also have a rich conception of what EAL might mean if, if we dig beneath the surface of some of that terminology, challenge some of the potential myths that have emerged and explore the best available evidence. So we're delighted to invite Professor Victoria Murphy, who's Professor of Applied Linguistics and Director of the Department of Education for Oxford University. Then we'll speak to Diana Sutton, who's Director of the Bell Foundation, um, who does some great work in this area. And we'll speak to school leader, Carl Rogerson, who's Principal of Billsley Primary School, and director of Billsley Research School. And um, first introduce my co-host, delighted to have you back, Kirsten. Uh, just want to introduce yourself to our audience if they don't already know um, your brilliant co-hosting abilities. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, delighted to join again. So yes, I'm a senior content manager at EEF, working with a team of school leaders around curating campaigns that we hope are accessible and actionable for school leaders. And I think there'll be some really interesting overlaps with the themes that we discuss in the podcast today. Um, there are more and more children, aren't there, um, in the world growing up with more than one language. And I'm really interested in developing a better understanding of the relationship between first and second language and really thinking about the implications for us in school and those huge opportunities, but also challenges as well. And I think that's a great starting point to uh, introduce our first guest, Professor Victoria Murphy. Uh, Victoria, could you just introduce yourself and your background and, and particularly, obviously, the, the expertise and emphasis in, in this area, the, the topic of the podcast for us? Yes, well, thank you very much, Alex, and thank you, Kirsten. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so yes, I'm Victoria Murphy. I'm a professor of applied linguistics and uh, director of the Department of Education at the University of Oxford. And um, I've been interested in how children develop knowledge of more than one language since I was probably about three. Um, I, I think I had an implicit interest because I uh, grew up in Ottawa in Canada. And um, those of you who know, Ottawa is the capital city. And because it's uh, an officially bilingual country, Ottawa has a lot of French as well as English um, because it's where Parliament is. And so I was fortunate to be um, exposed to French, even though I was growing up in a very monolingual uh, home in a very monolingual neighborhood. I was exposed to French at a very early age and then was able to participate in French immersion um, as a sort of bilingual education program when I was in primary school. And for one reason or another, I think I was just always interested in languages and how we learn languages. And so I studied linguistics and psychology at university and I basically never left. And I'm still studying um, how it is that children can develop knowledge of more than one language at the same time and how those different languages interact with each other in the mind of the bilingual or multilingual child. And importantly, for somebody who works in education, I'm very interested in what educational provision can do to support bilingualism and multilingualism, because I am of the view that it absolutely should. That is, it should be supported. It's important. Uh, and, uh, and it is also the reality of the world, as you said earlier, Alex. So that's me. That's great. And, and I think three years old is the earliest cited kind of um, <laughs> inspiration, certainly. Um, I, I think already, you know, we, we talk about bilingualism, multilingualism. We use acronyms like EAL. Mm. And I think because of that shared language, we don't necessarily have a shared understanding. And there are misconceptions and some myths that emerge. And, and perhaps, arguably, England, because it hasn't had some of the kind of linguistic diversity of, of Ottawa um, and that kind of multilingual basis, perhaps 
that might mean that there's more prone to those misconceptions or myths. Um, do you think that's a factor? Um, are there myths that you think are persistent around bilingualism, multilingualism, and is it an English thing or, or is it a bit more expansive, a bit more global or international? Well, uh, yes, so there's a lot in there. Um, the first thing yeah. I'm gonna say is there is a misconception in what you just said about linguistic diversity in England, um, in that um, England and the UK more broadly is a highly, highly linguistically diverse context. And, and that's part of the issue that I, I, I'll just sort of lay my cards on the table, if you like, that yeah. the reality of our society in the UK, and I think this is a good thing, that's my opinion, yeah. is that we are highly multilingual and we are highly multicultural. But I would argue that the typical experience that children receive in schools, or at least the school system itself, is not and so the reality of the pupils and the teachers is a different reality from the system that's sort of imposed on it. And I think that's one of the problems. But in terms of your sort of broader question about myths and misconceptions, I think, I think there are plenty. There, there are a plethora uh, of myths and misconceptions when we're talking about multilingual pupils. And, um, and I don't think they relate just to the UK or, or the English context. And I think one of them relates to um, talking about the a group of multilinguals as if they're all the same. And, I, and I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, it's sort of convenient to talk about EAL, English as an additional language, as if all EAL are the same. But in relation to supporting multilingual pupils in schools, I don't think there would be any teachers who would really advocate a one-size-fits-all approach to monolingual pupils. So when we're talking about what we should, how we should best support multilingual pupils, again, I would say that a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to be um, uh, applicable, that we, we might want to make some generalizations if uh, based on evidence if we have it. Um, but um, I think the reality is that the notion of the multilingual learner as being a homogenous group is absolutely wrong. Um, there high high variability within what it means to be multilingual. So to just to give you an example, in England we call we often refer to multilingual pupils as EAL because English is the medium of instruction in our school system. So English is an additional language. And I know many people have been critical of this term for various reasons, and some people view it as a, as a pejorative. I actually don't mind it in the sense that it relates, it, it sort of just states the fact, which is that for these children, they have English and they have another language. And it's not really putting one uh, above another. Um, and it uh, doesn't sort of speak to um, any kind of status between the languages that a multilingual yeah. pupil may have. However, um, I think uh, it is the case that um, it, it, it can be viewed by some people as sort of dominating the English side. And, and I mean, I think that's that's reasonable, I think, to some degree, given that we're, we're talking about children who are growing up and being educated in English schools. But what, what it basically means, going back to my point about the variability, is that some children who have EAL will be native speakers of English, and they happen to have another language in their home because maybe their parents speak another language. And so those children are probably not going to have any difficulty with English whatsoever. Um, and then there'll be other children who will fit into the multilingual EAL category who have very little English at all when they start school. And then there'll be everyone in between. So that in terms of just, just their proficiency in their languages, there's massive, massive variability in that group. And therefore, the, the, the sort of when you're a teacher and you have multilingual pupils in your classroom, I think it's good to sort of be able to predict what might what you might see in those children in terms of yeah. their abilities and wh where they might struggle and so on. But I think we have to be very cautious when we talk about them as, as a group, because it's basically like saying children, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. and not all children are the same and not all multilingual learners are the same. So talking about them in a sort of homogenous way is, is, is to misconceive what, what they are, which is just children who happen to have multiple languages in their life. 
So we live in this really rich and diverse world and, and it's true for multilinguals as well as anybody else. But I think another issue that I'd like to point out in terms of a misconception um, is thinking about multilingual pupils as a problem. Um, and and um, I, I'm not suggesting that everyone does that, but um, if I may give you a little anecdote, I um, used to live in a small village. When my, when my children were small, I lived in a small village in Oxfordshire. And because of what I do for my professional life, I was very, <clears throat> excuse me, I was very interested in um, supporting the school. And it was just a little tiny village primary school. And so I was elected to the um, Board of Governors, and I thought perhaps I could do some work that was related to my specific area of interest. And so I asked the head teacher, how many children in the school had EAL? And then her response to me was, oh, we are very lucky. So I'm thinking, oh, good, there's lots and there's lots of different languages. And she said, um, we're very lucky we have two. And it turned out that these two children were siblings and their father was a native speaker of French, and so they spoke French, but their mother was a native speaker of English. And so these two children were basically native speakers of English who were also growing up bilingual French-English, and two children in the whole school. Now, granted, it was a small school, but still. And, and I think that notion of that was expressed by that head teacher's response is something that I have actually heard a lot um, I've heard it a lot when we were moving towards the Brexit referendum um, on the radio. I heard people complaining that there were too many children in the schools who spoke languages other than English, um, I, you know, all of that sort of thing. So I think thinking about multilingual pupils as a problem is a problem <laughs> because yeah. I think having my belief, um, and it is a belief, but it is in part based on evidence, and I'll explain what I mean by that later, perhaps. But my belief is that having children in a classroom who can speak more than one language can actually be a massive resource for the entire class. Mm -hmm. The problem that we have currently, in my view, is that um, teachers are on the whole, uh, in the round, generally underprepared for the reality of having that level of diversity in their classroom. Um, and I would really like to see us moving towards a position where we have more evidence um, uh, as to the best ways in which teachers can support multilingual learners, not just in mastering English. They absolutely need to master English, as all children being educated in England have to do, but also in terms of helping those children develop their actual multilingualism. And I know that might sound weird to say, because if you're a teacher who yourself doesn't speak anything but English and you have children in your classroom who speak multiple languages, you might ask yourself, well, what can I do? I don't speak those languages. But um, people like Jim Cummins and others have been thinking about this and writing about this for some time about different ways of approaching activities in classrooms that could help learners draw on their home language and could support the sort of just even awareness that there are other languages out there. And that could help the multilingual learner. It could help the monolingual child in those classrooms as well. You know, I've, I've got a bit of a personal reflection there, Victoria. So I was born in Montreal and, and oh. without this becoming a Canadian club, um, <laughs> you know, kind of real personal perceptions and reflections around around being multilingual once mm -hmm. <laughs> and having lost that and actually the regret of losing that. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder, you know, you've talked about the kind of the, the potential, the, the, the benefits but where is that hindrance as well? Can we explore some of those as, as, as well? Uh, so I would say there are no, no hindrances. <laughs> well, uh, so, I mean, it's, it, there's a challenge for sure when, um, you, you, you know, you're, you're a teacher in a classroom and you have a student who doesn't speak any of the language that is the medium of instruction. So that is a challenge for the teacher but I wouldn't say it's a hindrance to the child, and I wouldn't say it's a hindrance to um, to the classroom generally. I mean, I think I think 
the reality in terms of the research we have in how children, the, the extent to which children have the capacity to learn and use more than one language um, overwhelmingly demonstrates that this is something that human children can do without cost. And by without cost, I mean without cost to their uh, cognitive development, without cost to their specific linguistic development. So if you're growing up with French and English in Montreal, there are millions of children who are growing up with more than one language at the same time. And there's no evidence from the rigorous research that's been done to demonstrate that those children's development of English or French, when they're doing it together in the mind of the bilingual, is somehow qualitatively different from the only English child or the only French child. So there's really no evidence that suggests that uh, growing up with more than one language damages in some way or hinders the development of language in children. And equally, when we've investigated um, in, in a number of different types of studies how uh, academic achievement in children who are growing up bilingual, uh, again, we don't see any evidence that if there are challenges academically, it's because specifically they're bilingual. I mean, you know, children do badly at school all the time who are not bilingual and those sorts of issues that impact the monolingual child in terms of holding them back will impact the bilingual child in terms of holding them back. So I would say that, that, that there isn't really a hindrance in the child or in the mind of the child, but I would recognize that there's a big challenge for teachers. Sorry, to pick up on that, I think that's where some of the deficit model narratives might emerge because it's a lack of confidence it's a lack of understanding and then fundamentally it's a lack of being able to exercise all of those opportunities you've described of being multilingual and, and the yeah. benefits that can bring to a class you know linguistically culturally you know in, in lots of ways so perhaps we're getting to the root of some of those misconceptions and, and what we need to do about it is to support teachers and have better evidence to support teachers as well yeah. to exercise the opportunity and, and then that, and in doing so, we wouldn't fall for the kind of the defensive deficit model, perhaps. I, I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, it's easy to see why that happens, because um, teachers understandably are under a tremendous pressure and they have to, you know, get their children to perform at a particular standard academically. And because we only... Um, you know, educationally care about English in terms of the formal assessments, um, naturally teachers are going to be very concerned about supporting the children's English. And if they come with weak English, um, you know, it takes time to learn. That's another thing that people forget is it takes time. And so um, I can certainly understand what, where the deficit model comes from in that re respect. But I, I agree with you completely, Alex, that if we had a stronger evidence base and then we had um, sort of a more coherent focus on these issues within initial teacher education, um, we, would, we would be able to support our teachers better in giving them that confidence. They would, they would at, at the very least know what to expect when they have multilingual pupils of different types of um, proficiencies across their languages. And hopefully they would also have, um, as they do with other aspects of their professional practice, the, the, you know, the skills to leverage different abilities within the students that they have to be able to support their learning across the piece, to not just English, but to support their learning in their home languages, to engage with, with curiosity about the whole notion of languages and how to express things in different ways. And that curiosity and enthusiasm could you know, um, leech out, if you like, into the wider classroom and and support those poor monolingual children who don't have anything else in their linguistic diet um, and could really positively influence them as well. Yeah, it, that reminds me of one of the areas of, of literature about vocabulary is around word consciousness and this curiosity about language. And I think mm -hmm. that feels like a real boon. Uh, and you've just described it really well in terms of just one aspect of that curiosity and connection making that's so, so valuable. And if yeah. you can exercise that, that's where you don't have that kind of, you know, that, 
that example you gave earlier, kind of really sticking with me, you don't have that because then you recognise just how rich your classrooms, richer your classrooms could be. There are these distinct and different needs and that that constant balance in, in the classroom. Um, just be an interesting one to get your reflections on what the evidence might indicate is good practice for teaching EAL pupils. Yeah, so... Um... Well, academic English, again, is something that all children will have to learn, uh, not just the multilingual pupils, but the native speakers of English as well, um, because nobody is a native speaker of academic English. And um, we know that um, from lots of research studies that have been done in this country, but also in other countries, that um, the strongest predictor of academic success is the proficiency in the language the, the, that's the medium of instruction. Um, and I, I, sorry, I don't mean strongest across all possible predictors, but that is a very strong predictor. Um, there are lots of other predictors such as socioeconomic status and those sorts of things that are very clear um, correlates with academic achievement. But in relation to linguistic skills, having proficiency in the language of instruction is, is a really, really big one. Um, so it's it's not su a surprise then in relation to your question, Kirsten, that any approach that aims to support the development of proficiency in English is gonna support um, academic English as well. Um, but I do think it's really important to recognize that this is something that all children need. It isn't just an EAL issue, it's something everybody needs. Um, in relation to best practice, however, I would say that um, for me to be able to answer that question with complete confidence, I would have to draw upon a foundation of solid research evidence, which I feel in, of, from having contributed some evidence myself to the field that we just don't have enough of that in the UK context. I, I, there's actually quite a lot of evidence about um, language and literacy interventions from the US context, but um, I think it would be very um, uh, reckless to generalize the findings across those uh, studies um, to the context we have in England and the UK more broadly, because the, this context is so very, very different. Um, both in terms of, you know, the educational system being different, but also in terms of the, the um, sort of demographics, if you will, the characteristics of the populations of interest. So what it means to be multilingual in England is, is probably quite different than what it means to be multilingual in California, for example. So I think we do have to be really careful generalizing across, generalizing research findings across contexts like that. Nonetheless, um, I think we can certainly be inspired by some of this evidence as to, you know, what would work in relation to supporting um, English generally uh, and academic English in particular. But um, I think one of the, the, the biggest things, and this is pretty obvious really, is that um, the curriculum and, and teachers implementing it should really be language rich and language attentive. Uh, for all students, not just EAL again. And I think that teachers, again, it goes back to our point earlier about um, teacher education, initial teacher education, but teachers also have to understand that they are language teachers, even if they're not formally called that. So I think it's easier to accept for primary school teachers that they're language teachers because a big part of certainly the early stages of primary school is to help support literacy. But I think some secondary level teachers don't see themselves as, as language teachers. Intervention studies, and again, most of them come from the US, have indicated that approaches that offer really specific targeted support on aspects of vocabulary are likely to be the most effective at supporting academic English. Um, associated with this, I think, would be supporting children's development of word analysis strategies. And this, again, relates back to the awareness issue that you mentioned, Alex, um, because you cannot teach all words in a language. <laughs> um, but what you can do is you can help children understand how words go together and what they're made up of. So the phonological structure of a word, the morphological structure of a word, and so on, could all be issues that could be brought to the, to the attention, 
to the awareness of the child. So we'd be developing what's called metalinguistic awareness skills in the child. And that would mean if we had we, we had really targeted vocabulary instruction for key aspects of academic vocabulary, but that was consistent uh, went along with um, more kind of um, awareness raising, if you like, inferencing and strategy based instruction, then that would equip the child both with some like basics in terms of the vocabulary that's targeted and taught explicitly, but it would also give them the tools that they would need to be able to do some really um, effective lexical inferencing as they, and analysis as they encounter different words in different types of language. Yeah, that's, re that's really helpful and, and really comprehensive. And I suppose my final question was going to be a, one piece of simple advice for teachers, but I almost feel like that, that should be the response to end with because that complexity, that richness, and that some of the choices we have to make really carefully, you know, with sensitive monitoring and understanding your pupils is, is actually the advice, isn't it? And there's kind of, if I may, I almost want to answer the question by just replaying a couple of things that you said that's been so powerful. So you made this point about nobody's a native speaker of academic English. I think that's such a powerful point of awareness and about mm. an awareness in the classroom that that almost challenges some of those misconceptions we started mm. with and blasts some of those myths mm. and then if I was to summarize some of the you talked about language rich and language attentive classroom and I love that that mm. phrasing um, being attentive and, and the richness and there's strategies underneath that and teachers do need practical strategies but that mm. feels like such a careful appropriate supportive and positive uh, point to end on. And just to say, just a, a big thank you, Victoria, for, for giving you your time. And, and I think there's a lot to reflect on there. And, and at points, it really challenges some of my conceptions, some conceptions we have in schools. And that's really important. You know, we need to be challenged and then supported mm -hmm. to have, you know, to make some of those choices that you talked about. And, and we do need to have, you know, in a future podcast, and hopefully you come back, that we, we feel more confident. I thought that felt like a driving um, argument that you've made there, that we need better evidence to support both teachers and to really reinforce this richness of a multilingual classroom in all of our classrooms. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that and for, thank you for your time. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to welcome our second guest. Our second guest is Diana Sutton, who's director of the Bell Foundation. Uh, Diana, could you talk a little bit about yourself, your background? Thank you, Alex. So I'm Diana Sutton and I'm the director of the Bell Foundation. So uh, the Bell Foundation exists to improve policy practice and systems to enable children, adults and communities in the UK that speak English as a second or additional language to succeed through language education. Uh, my background has been working in the foundation now in this field for over 10 years and prior to that in children's charities. Thank you. And we talked to Victoria. One of the first questions um, we raised was about the myths that attend English as an additional language, multilingual pupils. Um, and, and we explored kind of lots of myths. In your 10 years of, of deep immersed work in the system, what would you say are the, the myths that are really prevalent um, from your perspective? Well, I think uh, two really at both extremes. One, that these pupils are a drain on resources, or secondly, that they just outperform um, other groups. And of course, you really have to look behind the data to understand this. And the work that we did with yourselves and Unbound Philanthropy and Professor Steve Strand shows very clearly that, of course, that it is proficiency in English that is the greatest driver of attainment for multilingual learners. So it has 22% of an impact on educational attainment compared to um, the 3 or 4% associated with free school meal status or gender or, or other um, indicators. So that's one factor. The other factor is there is a myth that having large numbers of EAL pupils in your school brings down attainment. And again, the research published with your, you, yourselves shows that that is absolutely not the case. The other area in relation to this is, of course, it is a, a, 
mixed group of pupils. So you within the EL category, you can have a child of a Swiss banker who might speak four languages fluently and be very highly educated. And you can have a Syrian refugee or refugee from another country yeah. with limited language and literacy in their first language and limited prior educational experience. Or you could perhaps have a, a child from um, say Lithuania, whose parents have come to work in agriculture, who may have covered some of the content and who may have had some competence in English. So uh, like every child, it's important to assess the child individually, what their abilities are, both in the content of the subject matter and, and in language. I think that what that touches on, Diana, is um, teacher knowledge of their pupils, school knowledge of their pupils, and, and beyond data, beyond labels, um, and actually, you know, knowing your pupils, knowing what they know and, and areas to develop. Um, but then we keep on here, you know, you know, seeing these myths emerge. Do you think there's a, a bit of a gap here between kind of teacher professional development, kind of, kind of support for school leaders in terms of a level of understanding that would help kind of increase this awareness and maybe the nuances that you're describing? Yes, that's right. So um, 20% of pupils have English as an additional language. So that's the most teachers will be teaching to the multilingual classroom at some point in their career. Um, Our research and also the OECD TALIS research shows that teachers feel ill-prepared to teach to the multilingual classroom. So actually this, this issue is not covered in initial teacher education very substantively. And with the demise of the um, Ethnic Minority Achievement Grant that was prior to 2011 ring-fenced in the system, there's very limited um, ring-fenced support or local authority support in the system now. So the expertise is gradually disappearing or has in fact disappeared quite rapidly from the system. So I think that in the absence of the expertise in the system and um, robust academic research, that obviously leaves a gap for myths to develop from headlines. You know, I I was shocked when we visited a a school shortly after the Brexit vote and the, the negativity for pupils and the fear of some pupils in their family. And none of this is helpful, Um, actually, We have large numbers of children coming in now from refugee communities, from Ukraine, from Afghanistan, from Syria and from Hong Kong. And schools need the uh, technical abilities to be able to support these children and to help them integrate, um, whether they're joining age five or whether they're joining age 15. That's really interesting reflections around what we know, what we're able to share. and, And also if we layer on top of that our learning more now about the impact of the pandemic on multilingual pupils, thinking about the number of sources that that we could cite here, it'd be interesting to get your reflections on on the challenges for schools, particularly in this area. So the pandemic, your research, EPI's research, and some research that we did, and even some research that the DfE did, showed that all pupils were impacted by the pandemic, but certain pupils were impacted more um, and we, our teacher survey that we did with the NFER showed that, um, that pupils, for example, we had one teacher saying that well, what we noticed was the lack of scientific language for these pupils, or that the impact was similar to the impact of um, pupils who were disadvantaged. And I think, again, uh, there were a lot of myths around that perhaps parents couldn't support in the home language, but home language support is particularly helpful actually um, to, to help continue education. So I think we, we saw as a result of the pandemic, yes, several months of both language loss and learning loss. Thank you, Diana. And, and thinking particularly there about how the home language can support the role of parents, of carers, of, of school communicating and supporting parents be interesting to, to hear about experience you've had of that that we could share with our listeners. Yes, so some research we did when we started the, the foundation with um, Cambridge University and Anglia Ruskin University was uh, around the role of parents. 
Um, so one of the important things being around home language maintenance and supporting language at home, children who are familiar with books and stories in their first language do find it easier to learn to read and write in English when they get to school. I think that research also found that uh, parents are significantly underrepresented in school structures and decision making. We've also come across some really interesting models like bilingual parental support advisors or having parents from communities um, who can, can help make links between the, the par parents, new parents and school. Uh, we've, we've also produced some guidance translated in 22 languages, which um, helps parents understand the English school system, because of course it may be, will be different from uh, the country that the parents have come from. Thanks, Diana. Um, interesting, in, in the, the chat we had outside this podcast, we were talking about learning from international partners as well, and you were talking about some particularly good pieces of work that, that perhaps we could learn about in the, in the UK. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. So what we see is that certain countries have much more structured support, both in terms of how they assess learners and how they support learners. So um, in the, the United States, for example, uh, children are ELLs, or English language learners, until they graduate from English language support. Um, we've seen similar work in Germany, where um, a foundation rather similar to ours has looked at this issue within teacher training. Um, we see even in the devolved nations, so for example, in, in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, the proficiency scales still remain in the system. So actually children are assessed um, according to their proficiency in the language of instruction. And the, the systems are much, much more robust in the states to do this. And therefore, teachers are, are able to assess both the child's competence in the language of instruction, but also some of the content as well, because the key is both assessing the child initially when they join school, but also formatively as they as they go through school to see progress, particularly in relation to content and language integrated together. It's really useful. I think um, one of the aspects of kind of learning from different countries, different approaches, is that we're all dealing with sometimes this act of translation, this kind of this tricky, challenging act. And one of the things that struck me um, from speaking to Victoria was around this almost misconception that academic English, that specialist language, is something that just pupils just absorb. And she challenged the kind of notion of just like a sponge, you just take this on. So what what, what your observations with all the experience work that you've done in the foundation around academic English being uniquely challenging and, and something we need to be more explicit about? Well, this is, of course, particularly true at secondary. Um, and it's also true for all pupils, of course. So actually, um, methodologies that can enhance academic English for EIL learners will, will, by definition, benefit other learners. So to give a couple of concrete examples, the, um, uh, the, the history question, what was the origin of the First World War? Uh, the child said, some geezer got shot. And actually, of course, the teacher was looking for the assassination of Arch Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But of course, in that example, the child actually knows content, what, what, what was the, the origin, but lacked the lack of academic language to express it. And similarly for geography, when asked to describe a characteristic of London, a pupil might say, many people live there. Whereas the teacher would be typically looking for a phrase such as it's densely populated. So I think really um, importantly, techniques for teachers supporting multilingual learners don't need to be expensive or time consuming. Uh, we're not necessarily needing to be dependent on very complex computer programs it's actually around how you scaffold how you perhaps before your lesson think about are uh, is there some pre-teaching of necessary vocabulary because the child may well know the content and just actually lack the academic language to express it so these techniques that 
um, can support the acquisition of academic language uh, could be really effective. Um, similarly, um, using allowing the child to use their, their home language to support the learning as they make sense of text or work collaboratively with, with other pupils. And when teachers mark um, or assess work, actually give feedback on the language used as well as the content. So it's back to that point about being attentive and language rich and being really aware of, of language. Subtle you know, translation across languages is often over and really obvious, isn't it? But actually, the subtle code switching between you know the, the history example you gave there and the geography terminology. And, and what I like about that is that you know there's no program you buy in here. It, it's it's just sensitive, high quality teaching, isn't it? For really knowing your pupils and the language they need. Um, there's a lot in there for, about what's practical for teachers. And I, I always feel like I'm cheating a little bit with this final question because we want to simplify all this complexity into kind of one bit of advice for teachers to take away. But if there was um, something that you wanted, you know, every teacher to know and do when they're teaching, supporting multilingual learners, what would that be for you? Well, I'd say there's really three things. One, um, assessing proficiency in English as the single most important predictor to success, both initially but crucially formatively on an ongoing basis. Secondly, prior educational experience is important to know. So a child may well have covered the actual content in their previous education, but just not have the language to express it. Or they may have had very limited prior education. That's a really key thing to know. And then, as I said, adapting teaching for EAL learners doesn't have to be time consuming, doesn't have to be a lot of work and doesn't need to be costly. That's a brilliant way to finish that. You did cheat a little bit by saying three things, but they were so important and so valuable that I, I'll accept that. Uh, and they are they are inextricably linked, actually, aren't they, in terms of assessment, about not making assumptions about what pupils know and, and that explicitness of language. So that was a, a, a brilliant finish and just says, uh, it remains for us to say thank you for your time. Um, I would recommend for our listeners, if you've not already accessed or, or explored the work of the Bell Foundation, uh, to do so, um, give that a search, uh, really supportive and, and really powerful work for schools. So thank you for your time and, and thank you for the work uh, in both individually, but also of the foundation. Much appreciated. Thank you. So I'm really pleased to welcome our last guest, Carl Rogerson. No, Carl Well, he's principal of Billsley Primary School and director of Billsley Research School. And Carl, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, but also uh, about your school and about the trust you're in and, and the area and, and the multicultural community uh, that you live and breathe? Yeah, thanks, Alex. So yeah, my name's Carl Rogerson. I've been at um, Billsley Primary School for 12 years now, long time. Um, it was a special measure when I first came and um, we've been on a real improvement journey over that time. We've got um, 684 pupils, uh, especially sorties and provision as part of that. And we also have nursery provision. And just as a, a sort of an overview, we um, our disadvantaged figures are around about 47%. Um, and then I suppose moving into what we're going to talk about today in our multilingual learners. I do like that phrase, Alex, multilingual. It sounds positive. And sometimes yeah. we can have a, a deficit. We've talked about this before in terms yeah, of that. Yeah. But, um, we, we, I knew we were going to be talking about this, so I had a quick check on our figures. So we've got about 40% of our pupils identified as uh, multilingual or EAL, as it may be. Um, so it's a wonderfully diverse community that has changed over the time I've been here. And I think it's added that changing community and diversity has been really positive uh, and have been a real big part of our improvement journey as a school. Um, I'm very passionate about that. Um, so if you look at those pupils, just as an example, you know, we have, and I'm sure many uh, colleagues in schools will have these communities. We have Arabic speakers, Urdu, Italian, Dutch, Punjabi, Mandarin, Swahili, this whole range um, of languages. Um, and there's varying proficiency within those um, when the pupils arrive with us. Um, I think this can be sometimes a misunderstanding and some of our EL, EL pupils can sometimes be labelled as newly arrived, and that's not the case. Mm. And I think there's a challenge for us in terms of that. Um, 
it's a wonderfully diverse community, some challenges in our community, but our, our children uh, start school well. We, we're really passionate about those early years and giving them the best start to life that they can. Um, and they bounce into nursery and reception, key to learn, um, some with rep- some trepidation, uh, particularly those uh, children who have not attended preschool settings and et cetera. And we're very clear that we have um, processes and, uh, to support them, give the extra support for them to settle. But they're enthusiastic, they're keen, um, they love learning, uh, they love learning through play, and they love to talk. That's really great. And there's a couple of things that I've just draw out, actually, because uh, you made a reflection about um, the almost misconception that you know, multilingual learners, EAL, is this homogenous group, and we treat them as such. And, and often that homogeneity is... There's a fault there. There's an issue there. You know, there's a solution that's needed there. And I think that's what Victoria challenged right at the start of this podcast. And I think you, you made that point about different pupils at different starting points. They bring different gifts to the classroom. and But there are challenges there as well. And I think with that diversity, with that, you know, kind of variety of starting points, it's pretty typical of, of most earlier settings, most primary classrooms. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about like how you've developed the culture in the school that it is really positive, it is celebratory, it does create that kind of warmth that you described. Is there kind of a set of ingredients that you think about the developing that culture? Um, that's a good question. I think, there's, you know, when you get a new member of staff, you talk about onboarding, you know, and, and, and what you give to them. And I think it's, there's a tension there in terms of for those uh, pupils and and parents or carers in terms of that so and it and it might sound small but actually that welcome that that member of staff who first welcomes them the 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 way that they can access all the complexities of school life in terms of uniform uh, if they want breakfast club um, paying for school dinners or not or claiming for those or there's an awful lot there so we so we invest in that and invest time in that we make sure we remember senior leadership meets the parents meets the pupil um and you're often met with this smiling, slightly anxious, but this smiling face was key. And and I think that's that attention can sometimes be missed because we're very, you know, we know that for pupils to learn, they've got to be settled socially and emotionally in order to access. And 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 these pupils depend on depend on proficiency, like we've said, but they've got the complexity of learning that new language. And if at the same time there's an anxiety and they're not, they don't feel settled in the environment they're in, that obviously increases the challenges for that. So we invest a lot in that and we provide um, buddies for those children. We, they, um, the pastoral team are a big part of that um, as well. And it's everybody. It goes down to very simple things. And I know lots of schools do this as well, but it's the fact that in the morning that teachers are on doors welcoming parents and the senior leadership are at the school gate welcoming parents. That just, we, we sort of say that by the time a child's got to their classroom, um, at least three adults should have welcomed them or said good morning to them or I like your shoes. As simple as that might be. And you'll see it with some of our um EL pupils and particularly those new arrival pupils where they'll have this positive membership with a member of senior leadership and they might be the little joke or the little whether it's a fist pump or whatever it might be but all very small things that contribute to that culture within the school to make these children and their families feel welcome. That settling in sounds so important and we, we know the nervousness when we first step over the, into the school gate, you know, just really reflect on all of the people that they come into contact with. You describe that really, really nicely. And, you know, this ideal of a, a pupil being immersed in mainstream education with that sort of targeted support and the culture of the school, I'd be really interested in your reflections on practices around language learning talk vocabulary and maybe not just for our multilingual children maybe for all so with such a large proportion of our pupils identified as eal much of our approach centers around that whole school inclusive approach because what what's going to be good and it is the same with our disadvantaged pupils our pupils we've sent and, and and we know this that what's good for those pupils is going to be good for our pupil population um, anyway, and, and we know that our, the most effective levers for that 
high quality teaching and learning. We know that that's, that's where the children spend the vast majority of the time. I mentioned early years and, and, and uh, we invest a lot. We invest a lot in terms of training for adults in early years and a lot in terms of developing that an environment that enables quality interactions. And importantly, those quality interactions between adult and child, but also child and child. And, and you see it in this little, I don't know, I call it magic moments. My, my, my colleagues down there have said this, this happens all the time, but I'll go down and, and you'll see that the, um, the uh, engagement between the adult and pupil, but then you'll see that sustained, I suppose that sustained shared conversation, sustained shared thinking. And that's when you know you've got the environment right because it stimulates that. Obviously, it's then for teachers and, and adults to facilitate that, that development of language because we, we feel that they, that can enable success for those pupils. Um, we do lots of work with organisations like the Birmingham Repertory Theatre um, and the focus always for them is, develop, is development of language, development of vocabulary. But we also link that to curriculum. So we recently did a project, project a refugee project with them. Pupils um, uh, performed on the Birmingham Rec for that, performed in front of uh, their parents, their peers, etc. So that again helps with their um, feeling of belonging. We had a heritage project we worked on, and again that was about celebrating um, our own cultures, but also acceptance and understanding of other of others' cultures within that. And that was really powerful, actually, to give them that voice um, within that. So I think it's important that whilst we, we're looking at specifics around professional development, as we've talked about, where we're looking at language development, but looking at your wider curriculum and how that, what, how that reflects your community. If I, if I stick on that kind of wider curriculum part, we're very clear that we don't want pupils being removed from, as it were, the wider curriculum to take part in these interventions. So an example would be um, pre-tutoring. So we have knowledge organisers, um, but children have peer tutoring so around tier two, but often around tier three uh, vocabulary specific to that subject. So it enables to access that curriculum. And then where it's appropriate, linking that curriculum to our English curriculum. So they're becoming, uh, um, so that book has become embedded. Um, and we use programs such as Nelly. Um, so we know uh, the, what research is about Nelly, in particular for those um, pupils in reception, but we feel it's appropriate to support our children who are new um, to language as well. And there's a variety of other um, precision teaching and different resources we use for them. But I suppose if I said, uh, the philosophy is that we want as much as possible, we want the children engaged in the classrooms with their peers, engaging in that wider curriculum offer. Sorry, there's, so, there's just so much in there, isn't there? And just reflecting on, on the richness of what you've just described, that the staff, you know, professional development, thinking about building knowledge and having this real holistic understanding of, of the children in, in your area and and the kind of social support between staff as well. Really interesting to hear hear around that. And, and then the real celebration of diverse culture and, and the d deliberateness of that. You, you know, mm -hmm. described curriculum, staffing, language, but this community involvement really stands out to me. I mean, all of those, those links threaded through for those children to really celebrate their local culture and the richness of culture in your area. And... I think your reflections around that that social emotional learning just so important and I'd love to bring in families here and and your work on families in the community parents and carers and and how you ways in which that you know you you bring those into the to the picture yeah I think it's a good question and it's a question we challenge that with as I said that that, that change in our community over time presented different challenges for us and it's something that we we, um, we challenged ourselves on, I suppose. Um, I think, you know, if, if we're not careful, we can, you know, we, oh, let's invite them in for a reading workshop. Well, great. Um, I know Alex will be nodding along, that'd be great. 
Um, and, and, and there's a place for that. You know, there's a place for phonics workshops. That's important for, to, to understand this. And we do those. But, but in terms of the feedback we got, there was a nervousness to come into school um, and to step over that threshold. Um, and we realised, and this is quite a simple thing, but we realised that if we held events in the playground, the figures were quadrupled, tripled, whatever it might be. So it's a simple example, we used to have a Christmas fair we sold it in the hall. Well, we changed it into a sort of outdoor market, you know, lights, fair lights, music, etc. We get more people in. And these are small things in terms of it. But um, we got people engaged in that. And then within our, we have two groups, two parent groups. We have our community council and we have our parent council. I suppose the community council is a bit more formal, a little bit like governance. The parent council is actually just trying to get people into school, involved within school. And they will... Um, drive that for us so um i know lots of schools would do this anyway so celebrating those different festivals we often do it around food because food gets people in and we start talking about food and we try different food and um and our parents will cook that food as well uh, and are keen to share that and that came on on the back of that heritage project actually and i, I talked about the work with the arts as well and um, particularly working with a, a company called stan's cafe were great uh, for us they will. They were the ones who lead, will lead on some of these projects, and will have innovative and different ways of getting our community in and involved in terms of performance and those sorts of opportunities. Um, so I wouldn't say I'm not saying great. You know, we've got it, um, but it, but it's been a real passion for ours and development of that community. Um, there's all, that's all in our school improvement plan every year. However far we've moved, it's always in there in terms of what we can do next. What I love, Carl, is um, what you've described is um, both in the development of the school culture, the curriculum, language development seems to happen in lots of different ways, but it's all woven together carefully. And then the the work with parents. I love that choice about just you know doing things outside in the schoolyard just made that difference, and you monitored that difference, and that and that and those small aggregated differences start to build this really celebratory multilingual culture and almost it becomes just part of the fabric, doesn't it? But but I think what you're brilliantly describing is just really revealing that fabric to people and kind of the intentional choices that led to it. That feels like the perfect way to end uh, the interview and, and almost to bring together um, the podcast on this notion of English as an additional language. I think um, you know, this focus on the, the brilliance that how we cultivate and exercise this multilingual richness that we have in our school communities. So thank you, Carl, for, for the time you've taken to join us. Thanks very much. Kirsten, it's really great to hear from our three guests. I feel like from uh, their very different, really experienced backgrounds, we've just got a real fuller picture of, of the richness and, and challenges and support factors in this topic that, you know, we kind of... We call EAL, in, in, we've started to use terminology bilingual, multilingual. Um, what, what's one of your kind of key reflections then, just drawing together those, those three interviews? Yeah, they were great guests to invite, weren't they? And, and starting with the principle of the, the ideal of the child being immersed in mainstream education and this you know, careful balance of targeted support and really understanding we're not talking about a homogenous group here. We're talking about individuals and balancing those choices. And I think the theme of celebrating cultural richness has really shone through for me. And the idea of language diversity and a language rich environment for all. And I guess this is right up your street, Alex, isn't it? Uh, yeah, true, true. So, yeah, I think all the way back to the start of the podcast and, and Victoria talked about language rich, language attentive classrooms. Mm -hmm. I really love that phrase. Um, and she also stated this point, which kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit and kind of just challenged my assumptions, which was nobody is a native speaker of academic English. And, yeah. and too often we're making this assumption of EAL that we're having to particularly teach these people's you know, academic English, where actually all pupils need that high quality explicitness. Um, Diana's examples from history and geography, just capturing that kind of that language that every day in the classroom needs to be explicit, unpicked, discussed, debated, challenged, you know, and and all that that 
again, that richness, that switching, that kind of the layers of meaning that we can draw out there. So if, yeah, very much was in uh, my area of interest, um, which is a perfect segue to introducing the content of the um, next Evidence into Action EEF podcast, which is on vocabulary. Uh, we're going to uh, speak to guests about that. Um, compelling topic. It definitely builds on language richness. Um, so if you're interested in that, please do subscribe to the podcast. Um, really, you know, we're really delighted to um, have teachers and colleagues who are interested in education listening along and giving us feedback. And hopefully these topics and these experts and, and school leaders and teachers are offering amazing insights. I feel like they are. Um, so hopefully um, see you again or kind of meet our listeners again soon. Thank you.